to what is, I think, the 11th of this series of podcasts dealing with class actions. And today, let me do some introductions. I'm Peter Butler, um, a class action specialist, and I work closely with Jason Betts, who's with me, and Ruth Ogrington, who's also with me. Um, we're wondering about what we should talk about for this session, and we've come up with something that I think is important and very interesting. It links class actions with the rise of the regulator. Regulators now, as we all know, have not only extraordinary powers, and we'll talk about that, but they also have a keen interest and a renewed interest over the last five to 10 years in taking vigorous steps, using all those powers against those that they think are worthy of investigation. Now that's important in itself, and people know about that, but what's the link between the work that the regulator's doing and what so often follows the work the regulator does, which is the class action. We're going to talk today, as I say, about the powers that the regulator has, the powers to compel production of documents and provide information by individuals and companies. Let me begin by asking Ruth a question, which is, Ruth, can you talk to us about use of regulatory materials in class actions? Yeah, thanks, Peter. Um, so as you said, they, they've got powers available to them to gather a wide range of materials. Um, that might be books of records, so documents that a, a business may hold. It might be uh, examination information, so transcripts of examinations with individuals, or it might be written responses that are provided by a business or a company or individuals to a regulator's questions. So all of that material um, might bear upon topics which are also of relevant to a private litigant who might be thinking about a class action. So one of the things that's important to remember and um, a topic that we're exploring here is the question of how a private litigant may get access to all of the regulator material and may deploy that uh, to use in a class action. There's a couple of ways that a litigant can do that. Firstly, they can make a request of the regulator to provide to the litigant that information. Um, the regulator's positions on this um, are, are interesting. ASIC has um, stated publicly that its, its general position is that it will assist a private litigant um, to pursue litigation if it considers that the subject matter of that litigation is, is relevant or the same as the topic that it's been investigating. The only sort of qualifications to that assistance are really where the provision of that information by the regulator might be inconsistent with the regulator's policies, or it might um, prejudice the regulator's investigation, or, or thirdly, if it may um, contravene or, or interfere with the regulator's obligation to keep certain information confidential. So an example of um, an instance where a regulator might not voluntarily hand it over is if that information might disclose the identity of someone like a whistleblower, because to produce that sort of information might undermine the effectiveness of a regulator's policy to encourage people to come forward and, and blow the whistle on misconduct. The regulator might also be required to tell a third party if they've received a request by a private litigant to hand over documents. Um, but apart from those sorts of, of factors, as a general rule, the, the regulator, so a regulator such as ASIC, will do uh, take steps to, to produce that information. 
Other ways that private litigants can get information is through discovery, so seeking categories of documents that specifically target what has been handed to a regulator. And then thirdly, there might be um, court steps that might be taken. So for example, a, a subpoena might be issued which requests um, the material that the regulator has. So in summary, Peter, there's a range of different ways that private litigants can get access to documents. And as a general rule, it's, it's something that is not infrequently, um, infrequently handed over. And indeed, it should be considered as part of um, the sort of approach to actually handing over information to a regulator, particularly when you're looking at it from a voluntary perspective, whether you should voluntarily hand over information. Um, it's less of something that um, can be sort of uh, considered if, if it's the information is the subject of a compulsory notice, in which case it does need to be handed over, but there should still be consideration as to, to where that information may ultimately um, end up. Thanks, Ruth. So all this, of course, raises very significant issues. I mean, the fact is, whether you like it or not, if you're a company or an individual who's been facing regulatory proceedings, um, you must face the reality that, voluntary or not, there are going to be consequences that follow in a potential litigation sense that might be uh, issues of waiver, privilege or other things. Jason, I wonder if you could talk to us about potential consequences those who are faced with these regulatory inquiries ought to bear in mind. Yes, certainly, Peter. So I think there's three messages I want to send in respect of the interrelationship between a regulatory investigation or a regulatory risk and a, a private litigation risk like the risk of a class action. I think it's fair to say, and maybe it's obvious, but it's important to remind ourselves that gone are the days when you can treat the regulatory exposure as separable from the class action risk. Take a corporate governance issue as an example. A corporate, a potential corporate defendant who's faced with some sort of continuous disclosure investigation by ASIC as the primary regulator in that space is responding to questions about whether or not it had information it should have disclosed to the market earlier. That's also the lifeblood of the potential shareholder class action matter that could be run over exactly the same issues and facts. And so my first point really is when you're developing a case theory in respect of how you're going to substantively respond to a regulatory investigation, you're also developing your case theory for the shareholder class action. And you must do both synthetically. And unfortunately, you won't have to activate them at the same time necessarily. So when the regulatory or class action exposure first, first arises, the, the strategic key is to make sure you've assembled a, a team and therefore a response that's managing the regulatory response with an eye to the risks in the class action that may emerge subsequently. That's part one, have a, have a synthetic case theory. Part two is remember, whatever you do forensically in one, the regulatory investigation or the class action, you're doing forensically in the other. So as Ruth, you know, very exposed beautifully, all the documents that you're producing to a regulator as part of its investigation are theoretically fair game via discovery or subpoena in private litigation, in a class action. And so when you respond to a Section 30 notice or when a transcript's produced in respect of a Section 19 investigation, one needs to bear in mind that that may be produced by way of evidence in a class action. And so 
managing the strategy for producing material in one needs to be done synthetically with the other. So for example, if you're responding to a Section 30 notice, are you taking all steps that you can to contain the scope of that notice to avoid potentially the production of material that could be quite prejudicial to a continuous disclosure class action? So the third is resolution. Um, and this is the final point. Uh, the, the regulatory exposure may arise prior to or following the class action exposure. And the way you resolve one will impact the way you resolve another. In a regulatory investigation, resolution by way of an agreed civil penalty or a statement of agreed facts is going to create a record. It may not have strict forensic proof weight in a class action, but it'll be a disclosure that's been made the, the, the substance of which is an admission of some kind that will be used prejudicially against the company in the class action. Equally, if you resolve a class action exposure without admission of liability, it's still a public resolution, possibly for the payment of a significant sum, that will be of interest to the regulator in the way that it pursues its investigation. So again, same message, you really can't approach either exposure independently one team responding to one set of risks that happen to arise in two phases. Peter? Your point being you can't have a regulatory strategy uh, considered independently from the class action strategy. Very briefly, can you give me an example of where you've seen that happen in a really great way and for that matter where it hasn't gone so well? Well, we've, seen, we've certainly seen situations where uh, a corporate defendant's responding to a regulatory investigation in a way that it thinks is, for example, perfectly safe to answer the question of what it was thinking two or three weeks prior to making a disclosure to the market. Got a good answer to that, tells the regulator that the exposure's contained for all intents and purposes. Of course, the class action is not looking at the two or three weeks leading up to the disclosure, it's looking at the two or three years potentially leading up into the disclosure. And so if the theory of the response that's put to the regulator isn't also an explanation for what's been happening for the last two or three years, those case theories are, uh, are not synthetic. And the, 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 the risk of uh, taking a position with the regulator that's highly prejudicial in the defence of the class action arises. Ha having said that, um, when one's approaching a regulatory investigation and there may not even be a whisper in the market of a shareholder class action, but nevertheless, one approaches the response, not only in respect of document production, but also the substantive answer to the regulator with a view to how this would look through the lens of a judge assessing section 6742 liability in a shareholder class action, then that approach will be successful because you're, you're, whatever admissions you're making, you're making it consistent with the exculpation of liability in both scenarios. Thanks very much. Any quick, Ruth, any quick comments from you to conclude and then I'll ask Jason the same question and then we'll wrap up. Thanks, Peter. Um, I think one point just to sort of emphasise and it, it really flows from the points that, that Jason's been making is that when you're answering questions, particularly from a regulator, it's important to do the necessary factual inquiry to make sure that the answer you've, you're proposing to hand over is is supported by the contemporaneous documents so that you can explain that actually this answer is consistent and it will therefore be consistent later on. Those facts have been exposed and therefore those facts will then be the same facts 
that are considered when uh, if a class action comes along um, later on. Thank you. And Jason? I, I think I'd just say one, one final thing which flows naturally from everything that we've said. It's an unfortunate reality of our current market and, and the status of being a, a corporate, potential corporate defendant, that when you're engaging in the initial steps in response to a regulatory or class action risk, you need to assemble a team not that's focused on regulatory specialisms or class action specialisms, but one that's focused on, on both. And that often means building some capacity within your team, internal and external, that may ultimately not be used, but it is an insurance policy to ensure that the steps you take in one aren't highly prejudicial in the other. So it's a, it's a preparation point that's perhaps obvious, Peter, but it does flow out of this need to juggle these dual exposures concurrently. Great point, and maybe that's a great point in which to finish. As, as we say in our group, and have said for a very long time, the essence of the great litigation is plan hard, fight easy. And that's so true in this area, where there's this sharp intersection of regulatory and class actions coming together. Thanks very much. <laughs>